Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. We're happy that you're here today and ready to study the Bible with us. Uh, If you're not familiar with this program, let me explain very briefly how we operate Uh, You'll see a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. You can use those anytime to give us a question. You direct this program. We just answer Bible questions. A lot of religious TV programs tell you what they think you want to know or need to know. Uh, We kind of flip it backwards and say, what would you like to know? And we'll answer any kind of questions you got about the Bible or life and what the Bible has to say about it. So that's what we do, and we believe that that's a really good way to get to know your Bible a little bit better. So that's what we're operating on, and when I say we, I mean Steve Tandy, that's me, and my friend Toby Levering. Hi, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're back and studied up and ready to go here, and uh, we're going to get to as many as we can, but we always have a viewer question first. So here's yours for the day. What was the first plague on Egypt? Number one plague. Uh, I just thought we could get 10 trivia questions out of this one. we just go right through them, but uh, we won't do that. Uh, not everybody would remember all 10, I think, without without some pictures. Uh, but what's the first plague? And we'll get to that at the end of the program, see if you know it. All right, first okay. question. Yes, a viewer wants to know, how do you know your loved ones are in heaven? Uh, well, uh, that's a, a wonderful question. I appreciate you asking. Certainly, uh uh, we all think about that, and especially if we lose our loved ones, as as uh, every person faces death at some point, and when that's somebody that means the world to you, you like to think about, well, what's next? When will I see them again? Uh, how do I know they're in heaven? And the only answer I can give you to that is uh, Jesus' answer uh, that He is the way. He's the hope of heaven. He's the the way to heaven. Uh, he's where our hope lies, and it is absolutely through Him and Him alone. And if your loved ones were in Christ, followers, uh, people who obeyed Jesus and, and did what He said, uh, not perfect, mind you, but followers of Jesus, uh, put their trust and their faith and their obedience in, in unto Him, uh, then they can, you can be absolutely secure in the hope of heaven uh, that they had and that the no, that I know that they would want you to have. Uh, Jesus said in ja- John chapter 14, verse 6, the scripture that's probably well known, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, just prior to that, he said, he, this is John 14, he was getting ready to leave his disciples. He said, I am leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I'm going. And Thomas said, well, how can we know the way? And, and that's where Jesus answered in John 14, 6, I am the way. So uh, how can our loved ones have that hope? 
only through Jesus. Uh, and this is what the disciple whom Jesus loved wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And uh, in many places in the New Testament, we're uh, given confidence and security uh, in our, through our relationship with Jesus uh, that we can have eternal life. What that's going to look like and how it's going to work out, we're not given those details. We're just told that uh, we can know that we can have eternal life through Jesus. Uh, I hope that helps you. All right. If you ever wants to know about the 12 tribes, where are the 12 tribes of Israel now? Well, nobody knows where the 12 tribes are. A lot of people uh, come up with complicated theories and claim to be able to trace the 12 tribes and tell you where they are today, but it's not, not possible. Uh, I decided to do a little research on this one and see what some people said about it, and I read all kinds of crazy ideas, I guess I'd call them, but then I found a quote that kind of helped me understand it. Uh, this was a professor of Middle Eastern history, and he said, the fascination with the tribes has generated a massive body of fictional literature and folk tale. <laughs> so he said, everybody wants to know where the 12 tribes are, and there's a whole lot of fiction written about it and a whole lot of folk tales about where the 12 tribes are these days. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us where they are, and there's a purpose for that, I believe. Let me read you a couple of verses that may help you understand about the 12 tribes. Now, the 12 tribes, for those that don't know, were the, the 12 sons of Israel and became the tribes of Israel. They inherited the promised land and each got a section of uh, country to live in. Uh, but then Israel turned away from God, went to idols, uh, they split Judah and Israel, they continued to turn away, uh, they were taken into captivity, they were scattered all around, uh, so didn't exist anymore. Now here's what God said in Amos chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, uh, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord, are all, uh, a sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations. Okay. So God himself said, all right, you've disobeyed me long enough. I'm not going to wipe out Israelites off the face of the earth, but I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to sift you among all the nations. When James wrote his letter uh, to Jewish Christians in the New Testament, it starts with this, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So he was saying, I'm writing to Israelites, I'm writing to original Jews who have become Christians, uh, but you're scattered abroad. You're all sorts of places. So that's where the 12 tribes are. Uh, they're scattered. Uh, Jewish people today that can trace their lineage back a few years, uh, can't really trace it back all the way to a tribe. Uh, maybe their name gives them a clue, but uh, those records were destroyed. Uh, we don't know where the 12 tribes are. But the good news is it doesn't matter. Uh, let's read one verse on the screen, Galatians chapter 6. Paul was talking about this, and he said, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Uh, it's a new creation. 
As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He was writing to Christians, and he said the old Jewish ways don't matter anymore. Uh, this is a new Israel. Uh, the Christianity is the are the people of God now. So uh, we don't know where the 12 tribes are, and it doesn't really matter anymore. <laughs> Okay. A uh, person asks, uh, why would God accept Abel's gifts but not Cain's? Uh, did God show favoritism? Well, <clears throat> the story is found in Genesis chapter 4, and uh, God, in my view of it, as we'll read in just a minute, uh, God wasn't showing favoritism in that he was favoring uh, one person over another. It, it was the attitude that he favored, the uh, position that he favored, the reverence that he favored uh, over uh, the other. It wasn't that he arbitrarily said, I, you know, like Abel better than I do Cain, and therefore I'm, I'm going to uh, go with Abel on this one. That's not how God works. Uh, however, there are definitely some differences in how the two worship. Now, we're not told what God expected of them, what God required of them. In some way, he had communicated that, and we aren't given that, uh, those instructions. But Genesis chapter 4 will not be on the screen, but if you want to follow along, Genesis chapter 4 is where we're going to be looking at it. And it says, starting in verse 2, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So we have a a farmer and a shepherd. And uh, in the course of time, uh, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. This is the NIV translation. Brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor, so Cain was angry and his face was downcast. Well, this gives us some lessons. First of all, uh, can we worship God just however we want? N no. <laughs> God's always had a certain set of expectations of how he's to be worshipped. And because he's God, he gets to choose those expectations. Now, again, we're not given what expectations were. I think the text gives us a clue, especially in the translation from the NIV, you know, uh, Abel uh, brought some of the firstborn, some of the fat portions, which were the, the best portions, uh, the, the first part of uh, his uh, harvest, if you will, the, of the flock. And uh, But, but uh, Cain just says he brought some fruit. Maybe he just, you know, pulled the, the, the worst and, and the, the leftovers and the ones that he didn't want for his family, and he gave that to God. <clears throat> so there is a difference, not necessarily, obviously in what they brought, but it was how they brought it, the attitude with which uh, that, they, that they brought to God. So uh, it's an important lesson for us to remember when we bring our worship, as we bring all of ourselves to worship, we should bring our very best. We should bring our best attitude. We should focus our attention. We should, we should uh, sing and pray with uh, the best focus and, and reverence toward God that we can. We should give of our best. I, I like that we worship on the first day of the week. It's the, the first part of the week. Uh, when we give, we should give of our first fruits. 
these are things that are important, and there's a difference in, in how we do all of those things. We can do it haphazardly. We can do it out of routine. We can do it out of obligation. And that's very different from a person who comes prepared, who comes uh, reverent, who comes desiring to give God the best. So uh, I think that's why God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. And, of course, there was a lesson for that. God didn't want uh, Cain to be angry. He says, uh, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Well, uh, we can learn a lesson from that, too. So that's my explanation why God accepted Abel's gift. I think it had more to do with the attitude and reverence behind it than it did God showing favoritism. All right. Sometimes I think we answer detailed questions and get down to exactly what this verse means and all that. There's a more important thing in a lot of ways to understand the whole message of the Bible. And the story of Cain and Abel is one of the first stories about what God accepts and what God wants. Uh, he wants obedience. So getting the big picture of the Bible is important. And we think the only way to do that is sit down with your Bible and, and begin to study it, begin to read through it, begin to understand the different parts of it. And we know that's hard to do. The Bible is kind of an intimidating book uh, to just start with reading it. So we've got some tools that we've been offering people for years, and we think they're a great way to get the big picture of the Bible. This first course you see here, we'll send to you in the mail. And you notice the first two lessons there at the first are the Old Testament and the New Testament. It helps you understand that big picture. Then we've got some other advanced courses. Once you get through that first introductory course, these are good ways to learn more and more about the message of the Bible, the story of the Bible. And then if you're interested, we've got some online study tools now that we think are a great way to study the Bible in a little different way, maybe a little more modern way. So if you want to do it digitally, we've got a way for you, oneway.worldbibleschool.org. Sign on there and sign up for that course, and you can start studying the Bible uh, mobile-wise. So good ways to study the Bible. Phone number and a website on the screen all through the program. Use those anytime to request the study courses or log on to that oneway.worldbibleschool.org and get the online courses. Give us a try. All right, the viewer wants to know, is it a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian like a Muslim or a Buddhist? All right, is it a sin? Uh, in the New Testament, there really not a huge list of sins. Now, the Old Testament had a lot of things that said this was a sin. To eat this, to do this, to, uh, all sorts of things were called sins. The New Testament, it's just not that way. It gives us a lot of principles, uh, but it does tell us some things are directly sinful. So I don't think I can find a verse that says marrying a non-Christian is sinful for a Christian. But the next column that I'd think about is bad ideas. There are some things that I wouldn't say are sinful in and of themselves, but they're really, really, really bad ideas. And marrying a non-Christian, uh, especially a Muslim or a Buddhist for a non-Christian, is at the top of the list of bad ideas and may fall over into the sin category in some ways. Uh, here's what 
Paul said about it. And understand before we read this verse that Paul was writing to a place in Corinth where there were a huge variety of pagan religions. People worshipped all kinds of gods, uh, ungods I call them, but all kinds of false gods. And he converted people to Christianity. And then here's one of the advices he gave them, and it's in Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, 16. He told Christians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now that's pretty strong language. Uh, Paul's telling Christians, don't be unequally yoked. Now a yoke was something that you put over two oxen that tied them together so they could work together. So he says, don't be unequally tied together. Don't work together closely with an unbeliever. Because there's no fellowship there. It doesn't go together. These things don't match. (laughs) So uh, he doesn't specifically say that applies to marriage. Uh, I think it applies to all yokes, uh, a business partner, a close, close friend. All of that is tying together. But when you think about it, there's no closer tie together than marriage. That is where two people become one. Uh, to work together. And Paul's advice is, that's not going to work. There's no connection there. Don't do that. Don't be tied together with somebody that has no has nothing in common with you. And religion's at the top of the list. Uh, when I do premarital counseling, one of the questions I ask the young couple is, what do you like to do? What are your hobbies? And I I ask that to find out not what their hobbies are, but to find out how compatible they are. What kind of things do they like to do? Do they do things together? And if I ever had a couple where one of them said, I love the outdoors, I want to be outside all the time, I, I love outdoor sports, and the other one said, I can't stand the outdoors. I love to sit inside and read, and I don't like sunlight. And all that. if they ever heard that, I'd say, eh, this may not work so well. <laughs> this, this may be a problem. Okay, magnify that a thousand times to somebody that believes in Jehovah God and Jesus Christ and somebody that doesn't, somebody that believes the exact opposite. Uh, that's not going to work. There's going to be huge problems there. Uh, Religion is much more important than what somebody's hobby is uh, in making a marriage work. So I'll say at the very least it's a very, very bad idea. And if you want to take Paul's admonition as a command, then yes, it's sinful. He says, do not be unequally yoked. So bad idea for sure. Okay, a question about taking God's name in vain. Uh, When I use God's name in vain and then ask forgiveness, am I forgiven? Well, there's a lot of variables in that question. Blasphemy is absolutely a sin. Uh, In the Old Testament and the New, the name of God is to be revered. So uh, understand that at the outset. Now, there's just something in the way the question was asked, when I do it and then ask forgiveness, 
am I forgiven? Well, if you, <laughs> if you do it and you say, and you just have this attitude that's sort of cavaliers, well, I, I, I know I probably shouldn't do it, but when I do it, I got an out, I can do that. I think that's abusing the grace and taking advantage of uh, the mercy of God. Uh, I don't think that's the right attitude to have. Now, it's very different if you grew up in a household where the name of God was not revered and you go to work in an environment where it's uh, heavily, uh, there's a lot of blasphemy going on and uh, you, you've struggled with it your whole life and you're sincerely trying and occasionally you slip up and you let it out and you're very sorry and you're very penitent. I think that's a different place to ask that question. So uh, assuming the, the, the best of intentions, we just, I would say, all sin absolutely can be forgiven in Christ Jesus, and that's the promise that we have. Uh, but as Paul said in Romans 6, should, should we sin that grace may increase? By no means. Uh, that's, that's a different type of attitude. When a person sort of views the grace of God as just a get-out-of-jail-free card and I can sin as much as I want, it doesn't really matter, that comes from a different place. And uh, rest assured, God knows the difference in a person who's seeking and, and trying to do what's right and trying to revere the name of God and trying to do their very best to treat the name of God with the utmost respect and reverence. That's different from a person who's just think, well, I've, I've, I've got a, a, a pass with Jesus. I'll just ask for forgiveness and move on and no, make no change to my behavior. Very different way to ask the question. So uh, the problem, of course, of blasphemy, not only that we're not revering the Lord God, but it's a heart problem. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty four that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you're blaspheming the name of God, blaspheming the name of God, uh, it, it, it's coming from your heart. There's an irreverence to the Lord Almighty whose name is to be praised. And I would do a, a heart check for sure uh, and repent and, and kind of ask yourself, why do I not revere the name of God? Um, James chapter 3 said, uh, "Should the can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, uh, uh, this should not be. Uh, he said, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. I mean, if you worship God on Sunday and you're cursing God Monday through Saturday, James would say, no, 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 that's, that's not the way we should be. So uh, revere the name of God, hold it in holy, holiness and respect and reverence. And absolutely, if you uh, blaspheme the name of God, ask for repentance, ask for forgiveness. And if you're in Christ, uh, it definitely can be forgiven. Let's look at First John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness i hope that helps you all right here's one i can't answer who are the unseen powers and authorities in the heavenly places I can't answer that with details. I can tell you that there are uh, powers and authorities in the heavenly places because of at least a couple of verses. And let's just read those, and that'll be about all we can answer about it. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, uh, Paul says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
That's all he tells us. He says there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, he goes into a little more detail. He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so... We know there are authorities, there are cosmic powers, there's evil forces, but that's about all we know. Uh, all, all we know about spiritual beings really is that God created angels. At some point, uh, Satan and a bunch of other angels, probably about a third of them, rebelled, uh, wanted to be God themselves evidently, uh, rebelled and were cast out of heaven. That's our best understanding of it. Uh, we know that there's an archangel, uh, and it says he battled against Satan, so there's a cosmic battle of some sort. Uh, we know there's a cosmic conflict going on, but we don't know the details. We don't know the hierarchy. We don't know the titles of all of these powers and authorities. Uh, it's interesting to think about. People have written novels about it in fiction that says, assigns names and titles to all these demonic beings and all that. It's real interesting, but the Bible doesn't tell us anything about it. So the devil and his angels are, are powers in the cosmic forces, and God's good angels are also powers in the cosmic forces, and that's about all we know about it. Let me take a few minutes here as we close to invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. Uh, a couple that we like to recognize each week, and here's two of them at Augusta, just east of Wichita, and Wichita, you know, East Point on the east side of Wichita. Both of those congregations of the Church of Christ uh, believe in this program and help us stay on the air, and we'd like to thank them and invite you to visit them. If you go to Augusta, you can meet the new minister there, Wayne Vogel, great guy. I know that you'd enjoy hearing him preach. Uh, fine folks, go visit them sometime. Whatever market you're in, you can probably find a Church of Christ near you. Drop in and tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible. Tell me you got time yeah. to squeeze this one in sure. in a minute? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Viewer wants to know what are the last signs before the coming of Christ. And my answer to that is Jesus was pretty clear there's not going to be many signs. It's going to come upon us very quickly like a thief in the night. And um, Matthew chapter 24 is where Jesus answers that. And there's two questions there. Most people get those two questions confused. One is speaking toward the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in 70 AD, around uh, 40 years later. And then uh, the other is to the end of the age. And when he answers that, that question, he says this, and this is Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief is coming, he would have stayed awake, would not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is, is coming at an hour you do not expect. People put all sorts of time and write all sorts of books and, and surmise all sorts of theories about uh, the, the signs of Jesus' return. Every worldwide crisis is, is fit over the book of Revelation somehow. And I just think Jesus was clear. Hey, it's going to happen when you don't expect it. It's going to be life as normal. All of a sudden, just like a thief in the night, he's coming when you don't expect. So hope that helps you. There's not going to be many signs. Yep. You go back and read history, and all those signs have been applied every hundred years for yeah. 
2000, so <laughs> we don't know. Here's our trivia question for the day. What was the first plague on Egypt? Plague number one was when Moses turned the water to blood, uh, the Nile River and all the other water. Glad you've been with us today and hope you can be back next week for more of your questions. Until then, we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.